Looked like that was just a little bit messy. <laughs> but we are thankful that it, it wasn't just a good time, but um, in talking with everybody who had gone, that it, it was a time where um, the kids and those who were leading drew closer to Jesus. And that, that is the ultimate point and the ultimate purpose for the camp, and we are very thankful for that. Uh, well, I'm glad to join you this week. Uh, my, my family and I weren't able to be here last weekend, so I'm not exactly sure what it was that Pastor Jeff had to say. Maybe some of you can fill me in later, but uh, Ginger and I, we love to do this. We took our family camping. <laughs> and I've, I've heard it said that vacation is a period of time devoted to pleasure, rest, and relaxation. And nothing to me represents that much better than a good camping trip. <clears throat> I mean, think about it. You can sweat without worrying about decorum. I mean, you're camping. If you get too sweaty, you just go for a swim. I get great joy from being able to start a fire with one match, nurture it to life, and cook over the flames. Uh, some of my fondest memories were with Boy Scouts when my troop went up to Halliburton Scout Reserve up in Ontario. We'd catch fish, fry them up that evening, fresh from the lake. Nothing tastes better than that. I mean, even fried Spam tastes good when you're camping. <laughs> when you're camping, you get back to basics. You stay in a simple structure that allows the sweet, fresh breeze through, a tent that, when it's properly set up and maintained, is taut and strong and dry. <laughs> but I suppose that's not everyone's experience. <clears throat> The Boy Scout motto is, be prepared. And part of that means taking along what you need on a camping trip. About 20 years ago, a friend and I decided to take a long weekend in southern Kentucky to backpack in Big South Fork. We set off from our car and hiked a few miles into the forest, and then we made camp for the night in a beautiful spot overlooking a tributary of the Cumberland River. There was just one problem. We'd brought along some canned stew for supper, figuring we'd eat up what was in those heavy cans that first night, but we forgot something. A can opener. And neither of us had a Swiss Army knife with one either. So after some long, frustrating moments as our hunger built, we eventually resorted to bashing the cans with rocks to get them open. It was the grittiest stew I have ever eaten. We had to throw more than half of it away just to save our teeth, and it was not my proudest moment. In fact, I was relating this story to my mom just before we went on our family camping trip, and you know what? Despite Ginger's extensive list-making and all of the camping gear that we have, and despite having just told my mom that story, what did we forget? A can opener. Thankfully, this time I at least had a hammer and the screwdriver from the toolkit that I keep in the van, so I was able to punch around the can's lid enough to fold it back and get the contents out. Part of being prepared is having the right thing, and part of it is knowing the right thing to do when you don't have the right thing. When you're going camping, taking the right things is important. But I think when it comes to life, our answer to one question, whether that's conscious or not, 
dominates our choices and our attitudes. What can we take with us? On the one hand, it seems like a simple answer. Well, when it comes time to die, nothing. As Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. So, now receive the benediction. Sorry if that got anybody's hopes up. But as quick as we can be to dismiss this question, what, what can I take with me? I think it actually reveals something deeper and more profound when we have eternity in view. Which brings us to today's passage. If you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. I'd, I'd invite you to stand as we open God's word together. Um, Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. Um, it will also be up here behind me. Luke 12, beginning with verse 13. Jesus is teaching the crowds, and he's addressed by someone who has a difficult family situation. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat. Drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Then skip down to verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. You may be seated. I think here Jesus is addressing this question, what can I take with me, from two different angles. In this passage, he shows us the temptations of having much. But I think he also shows us the temptations of having little. And he shows us in the end, what we can take with us. So first, he shows us the temptations of having much. When confronted by this man who's concerned about his inheritance, Jesus tells a story that I'm sure was humorous to his original listeners. This rich fool tears down his barns, putting all of his hope in his wealth without realizing that his own life was ending soon. Jesus, in the middle of that, uses a familiar expression. Just like us today, I think his original listeners certainly would have recognized it. 
On the one hand, he's quoting the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Except the rich fool misses the context. This phrase appears twice in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and near the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. In the middle of that is a section that in my Bible has the heading, Death Comes to All. Isaiah makes this even more explicit, and Paul quotes him in 1 Corinthians, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The rich fool forgot his context. So then what's the temptation of having, too, of having much? Focusing on ourselves. Trusting in ourselves and forgetting about our soul. Notice that this rich fool mentions his soul, but he treats it as something at a distance, something to interact with, but not who he really is. Soul, you have ample goods. Relax. The stuff is the focus. The stuff is what he needs to hold on to and protect, but what is it that's required from him? Not those crops he has hidden in his barns. His soul. I think what we see here is God isn't so much concerned or opposed to this man's wealth, he's opposed to his attitude. Nashville pastor Scott Sauls observed this past week about a similar passage, that the man doesn't really have money. Money has him. And when money has us, when our possessions possess us, we put our trust in them and we stop seeing our need for God. The only prayer in the book of Proverbs includes these words. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Despite all of this, I really don't think that Jesus' main focus in this section is the rich fool. Remember that most of Jesus' followers and most of the early church were very, very poor. Much poorer, I would say, than most of us in this room today. These were peasants, people who didn't even have a change of clothes, people who often weren't sure where their next meal was going to come from. Jesus understood this because that was his life too. Remember, Mary and Joseph had to offer two doves when Jesus was dedicated at the temple because they couldn't afford a lamb. Jesus understood the poor. I think that's why this story probably would have made his audience chuckle. Look at the rich fool getting his comeuppance. But notice that when he tells this story, he doesn't say, watch out all you rich people. No. He says, be on your guard against all covetousness. Watch out for being fixated on what you don't have. Because just as there are temptations that come from having wealth, there are temptations that come from not having things as well. And they're not as different as we might think. So what are the temptations of having little? Well, just look around. 
In fact, that's part of the problem, comparison. There's something of a general, generational flavor to this, though it really doesn't change all that much over time. In my parents' and grandparents' generations in particular, America enshrined keeping up with the Joneses. If your neighbor got a Buick, well, your Oldsmobile started to look a little shabby, so you got a Buick too, and then your neighbor got a Cadillac. Did you ever notice how swimming pools tend to be clustered in neighborhoods? One person decides to get one, and by the way, that makes absolutely no sense to me in Cleveland. No offense if any of you have one, but why get something that big and expensive that requires that much maintenance that you can only reasonably enjoy for three weeks out of the year? I don't know, but, but, but I digress. One person in a neighborhood decides to get a pool, and then another neighbor gets one, and then another, and before long, you have this. It's an actual neighborhood in Parma someplace. But in our own neighborhood, admittedly, we've had something the same thing happen with play sets for our kids. Over the past two years, among six houses with adjoining backyards, we've accumulated no fewer than seven swing sets, forts, or other play structures. And yes, ours is number seven, and it's still under construction. So some of us might scoff at the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. But I'd like us to realize it can also take the form of chasing experiences rather than stuff. How many Instagram influencers have thousands of followers because of their portrayal of beautiful young people going to exotic destinations? How many people might not get a pool in their backyard, but they still spend more than they have on that Disney vacation or that big concert. You can't take it with you has become you only live once. And we all, every one of us, has to be careful of the insidious lie that goes with it. I deserve it. This lie, in fact, I think is at the root of the prosperity gospel. You all know what that is. Just turn on your TV, browse YouTube, or look for a list of some of the largest churches in the country. You can have your best life now. God wants to bless you. Send in $100 and God will turn it into 1000 Send in $1,000 and see what happens. You'll get a new mansion is what will happen. We may wonder how people could be drawn into something like this. At least I hope we wonder this. But it's particularly tempting for those who have little. What you don't have can still have you. Maybe you don't think that, that that's your struggle, but my friends, allow me to push this just a little further. Some of you have no doubt heard over the past few weeks about Joshua Harris, who announced that he was getting divorced from his wife and that he no longer considered himself to be a Christian. Well, 25 years ago, Josh Harris wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye that hit evangelicalism at a critical time. The tide of the broader, broader culture was rapidly abandoning any remaining ideas about the value of purity before marriage. And Harris boldly claimed that Christians shouldn't date. They should court. 
If we don't take our relationships lightly, he said, if we don't even kiss before marriage, God will bless us. The book quickly hit the bestseller lists, and I know it was a huge topic of conversation at Christian colleges like Asbury, where Ginger and I were at the time. We knew people who announced that they were engaged just weeks into their freshman year. I didn't even know they were dating. Well, they weren't. Now, not all of that was bad. Its call for purity was noble and true. I might think he went a bit far in terms of where he drew some of the lines, but in many ways I think he was right to emphasize God's boundaries on intimacy and the dangers that our relationship baggage can bring to marriage. But there was a problem, and a big one, underlying this book and others like it. And I think it's part of the reason that Harris himself retracted his bestseller three years ago. And I don't know, I don't mean to presume, but it's possible that it contributed to the end of his marriage recently. The writer, Caitlin Beatty, calls this the sexual prosperity gospel. She says it holds that God will reward premarital chastity with a good Christian spouse, great sex, and perpetual marital fulfillment. It's the ultimate one-up to secular licentiousness. God wants to give you a hot spouse and a great sex life, as long as you wait. The problem, as Beatty correctly observes, is that this still reduces God to a formula. Just like those televangelists or those megachurch preachers. If you give God this, he will give you that. Yes, our God is provider. Our God is healer. But we have taken your father knows that you need them and turned it into God will give you whatever you want. As Pastor Rich often reminds us, we're tempted to seek God's hand and ignore his face. We try to make God just a genie in a bottle or Santa Claus in the sky or a great cosmic vending machine who just exists to give us what we ask for. And when he doesn't, whether we want money or health or a storybook marriage, it can cause us to doubt God's goodness. It's caused many people, including some of my friends, to turn away from God altogether. If God really exists and really loves me and I've done the right things, why would this happen? Why didn't he follow through? All this focus on Joshua Harris has really hit me, if I'm honest with you. I never thought I'd given his book a whole lot of credence, but that underlying lie, well, I've realized it took root. God, I thought we did the right thing, so why isn't marriage easier? We're seeking you, so why isn't this everything I expected? Why aren't you keeping up your end of the bargain? But God isn't a genie in a bottle or a formula. And he never promised that our being pure while we're single will pay for a good Christian spouse. If you're single today, know that the, the Apostle Paul celebrates being single and devoted to God. But even he hints that his own singleness weighed on his mind. 
He writes to the Corinthians, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? And even if we do find a Christian husband or wife, God never promised us great sex and perpetual marital fulfillment. True love is a choice, not a feeling. Marriage is hard work, and it always involves two imperfect people. And when you add in the stresses of jobs and finances and kids and parents and laundry, it's easy to see how this angle of the prosperity gospel can be so harmful and lead to so many broken expectations and broken relationships. But just why is the prosperity gospel in general so tempting? I think it's because it hits at an old wound of ours. It attacks something we've lost. Look at what Jesus says. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. As I was thinking about these words this week, Jesus' phrasing seemed kind of curious to me, and I was reminded of something that happened long before Jesus said this, something at the dawn of our present world, back in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they chose their own way and sought their best life now, what did they do? Well, they attacked their own lives. For in the day they ate of that fruit, they surely died. From dust they came, and to dust they returned. They attacked what they ate, both the fruit of that tree and the curse on the ground, that never again would food and livelihood come easily to Adam and his children. They attacked their own bodies, Eve's pain in making a family and their broken relationship with one another. And they were aware of their nakedness, so they needed something to put on. I think Jesus here is hinting that the reason this prosperity gospel is so insidious, the reason the temptations are so strong when we feel a lack, is because it goes back to the very beginning, to that root of sin, to our ancestors' first claim, I deserve to make my own choices. I deserve to be like God. I deserve to have all of this. And now, what we deserve is all of this mess. So whether we have much or whether we have little, I think the same problem emerges. We're tempted to assign too much value to temporary things. We live as though these things are what really matter. But we can't take our money or our possessions with us. None of us is going to get out of here alive. This life, I mean. <clears throat> our experiences, as Pastor Jeff pointed out last week, will pale in the light of eternity. That trip to Bali will seem pretty insignificant 50,000 years from now. Even marriage, Jesus said, isn't forever. So what then? 
What can we take with us? Is it really nothing? No. There is something from this life that we will take with us. Our character. As Jesus reminds us, our souls. It's the very thing the rich fool ignored. But Paul wrote these words to the churches in Philippi and Colossae. He said, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's an important first step here, and we can't skip over it. We've got to die. And what Paul means is dying before we die. It means giving up our lives, recognizing that we can't do this on our own can't be good enough on our own, that what we all deserve is death and destruction. Only Jesus was good enough. But amazingly, as he hinted as far back as Genesis 3, he's offered us a trade. He will take our death and give us his life. But that means that if we have accepted that trade, if we have accepted Christ's payment on our behalf, we have already died in him. And that means we're dead to what we once were. We're dead to all of this, to our bellies and our shame and these earthly things. And we are freed to live the life we were always supposed to. What does that look like? It looks like Jesus. In our conduct and in our hearts, this is what we call holiness. Paul sums it up briefly just after that passage in Colossians. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Jesus referred to this as providing ourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, for a long time I read that backwards. I thought Jesus said, where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. So I thought if we love God, we'll want to give to his work, give to the church, give to missionaries, give to the poor. But that's not what he said, is it? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. My friends, just like marriage, this is more about work 
than feelings. Now, that doesn't mean we're earning our salvation. At yearly meeting a couple of weeks ago, I heard two separate people use the same quote from Dallas Willard, so I think maybe God wants us all to hear it. Grace is not opposed to effort, he said. It is opposed to earning. We can't earn God's favor. That's why it's called grace. We can't make ourselves like Jesus as much as we try. He has to do it. But he does call on us to put in an effort. He calls us to seek his kingdom, not ours. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, but it's still a yoke. And we still have to take up our cross daily and follow him. So we shouldn't wait to feel like giving when we know God is calling us to give. We shouldn't wait to feel like giving up sexual immorality. We shouldn't wait to feel contented to give up coveting. We shouldn't wait until we get what we want to give up wanting it. Because part of being prepared for eternity is knowing the right thing to do even when we feel like we don't have the right thing. Will you hear that again? Part of being prepared for eternity is knowing the right thing to do even when we feel like we don't have the right thing. But once we really accept that we have died with Christ and he is alive in us, we find we have a new power to tap into. It's not always pleasant, especially at first, and we won't do it perfectly. The nudges the Holy Spirit gives us aren't often what we really want a lot of the time. No, I don't want to give that away. Thank you very much. No, I don't want to give up that vacation. No, I don't want to give up my dreams. What's that? You say I've died? And I can't take this with me? And so, if we follow those nudges, if we open our wallet or our calendar, if we work to live a pure life, even if it hurts, in time, something strange starts to happen. We notice that our hearts aren't so much in the old things anymore. Our treasure is hidden in Christ, and we long to appear with him in glory. And when the world looks at us, it will catch a glimpse of him. What can we take with us? You only get to take your soul with you. No amount of wealth or experiences, or prosperity gospel will change that. And you have to take your soul with you. What's it going to look like? Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for this reminder that you have given to me. I thank you for this reminder that if we are in Christ, we have already died and we are a new creation.
that we are not to be about our own kingdoms, but we are to be about your kingdom. God, you want to bring that kingdom in power. And you want to do it through imperfect people like us. But it begins in our hearts. It begins in our souls. God, forgive us for the times that we have sought our own way. Forgive me for the times that I have said, I deserve it. Forgive me for the times I have selfishly thought that if I just gave you this, you would give me that. Lord God, work in us today. Grant us the strength to give up these things. That our stuff and our experiences and even our relationships would not have us, but that you would have us. Lord God, work in us today. Amen. If you would stand with me as we sing this, this timeless song, this timeless hymn together, it reminds us that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, he becomes our treasure. He becomes our one desire. Whatever be 
will be my vision oh, 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 of all. Sing heart, heart of my own heart, whatever befalls, still be my vision. today, it's my prayer that that would be true in your life and mine, that he would be high king over our lives, that he would be heart of our own heart, that whatever happens, whether we get what we expected or not, that we would still trust still seek him, seek his face. As you go, go in the peace of the Lord. Amen.